Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, what's up guys? Welcome to today's episode. I want to start out by giving a shout out to my friends over at the Poodle to Pitbull Pet Business Podcast. Dom's podcast gives you the simple marketing solutions you need to move your dog training business forward so you can help more people and make more money with your amazing dog training skills. And if you want more immediate help from Dom, then you can check out his free 30 free ideas by going to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash 33 ideas. I also offer online video call consultations for those of you that are lacking confidence and want a bit more mentoring from someone that is experienced in the industry. If you're a dog trainer that has questions about getting started, then you can book a video call with me at nickbenger.com slash book. Today, I'm talking to Lily Chin. Lily is an illustrator that specializes in dog drawings. She has collaborated with many of the most renowned dog professionals, such as Grisha Stewart and Sophia Yin, on books and educational posters, and sells her artwork online at doggydrawings.net. So, let's get into it. Well, hi, Lily. Welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. It's an honor to be on the show. And um, um, yeah, it's exciting. The thing that I wanted to start start with is asking about Mucha Lucha, what that was and how that brought you to the US. Okay, so back in the 90s, I used to work in animation in Sydney, Australia. Um, I worked in animation for a few years and then I had a partner, Eddie, Eddie Mort. Um, we set up a small animation studio called Fwack Animation, and we heard that Warner Brothers was coming to Australia to accept pictures for new shows. Um, so we had not, we were both obsessed with Mexican wrestling, um, Lucha Libre. That's when people wear colorful masks, and it's a Mexican tradition. It's, it's very popular now, but back then in the 90s, nobody had heard of it. So we had to educate everyone about what it was. So we pitched this show to Warner Brothers Animation. We had storyboards and designs and um, not expecting anything to come of it, but they really liked it and they optioned the show. In other words, they bought the show and they wanted to make it into a TV series. And that, so it became Mucha Lucha, which was a 52, I think 52 episode series um, for kids. It was shown on Kids WB Network in the U.S., and it's about a bunch of kids who go to school and become mass wrestlers. And they're all, you know, they have signature moves and they, yeah, it became a hit in the US. Um, and then we moved, Eddie and I moved to LA to work on the show as uh, producers and designers. And that's how I came to be in Los Angeles. It was funny to find that out about you because. I know you as being the dog illustration person, you know, like the that being your your specialty. And I remember that show when I was a kid, but I didn't realize at all that that was something that you had made. So that was really exciting for me to find out. And then I was on YouTube and I was looking it all up and I was, <laughs> I was watching <laughs> the old intros and stuff. But that was so fun. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's funny when people say they know the show because I, I assume that most people would have forgotten about it. <laughs> but something from the past. I, I think yeah. kids shows are really nostalgic though, aren't they? Like they just tend to stick in your memory in a way that other stuff doesn't. That's been my experience yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, and and that, that was the, like, you know, we don't have TV as it used to be anymore. So, <laughs> What do you mean? Like animated shows? I mean, like, shows. I mean, everything's on Netflix. I mean, I don't know about what it's like over there, but here, you know, everything I watch is on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I don't really watch TV anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think streaming is just taking over for everything, isn't it? And actually, I know that, like, the animation industry is a really difficult one, isn't it? Because, well, I know that for people that create content kind of off their own backs and on YouTube and stuff, like, it's very, it's a difficult industry, isn't it, animation? Um, Well, I really can't talk about animation anymore because I haven't been in the industry for many years since I started doing dog drawings <laughs> so I'm out of the loop but I, I mean I have friends who still work in the industry and they're doing well and yeah it, I mean it's going strong but just in a different way I mean there are different networks now people are pitching to Netflix <laughs> yeah I guess things have just changed yeah, yeah it's just kind of yeah. uh, changed so much how did you go from making animated shows to illustrating dogs um well it's a cliche I adopted a dog <laughs> and he took over my life his name's Boogie he was a um a rescue he, he's a rescue dog from Boston Buddies they do Boston Terror Rescue and he was about three years old and um I fell in love with him and you know and I started drawing him and post he had a blog I mean this he, he had a MySpace <laughs> what's myspace (laughs) (laughs) but um even before boogie i was fostering a few boston terriers for boston buddies rescue there was jazzy and rocky and and george and so they had myspaces as well (laughs) 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 anyway so i i guess i i started having some sort of a small internet following for these stories about my rescue dogs and I was drawing them um and then people would say hey you know could you please draw my dog and I and I in the very beginning I mean this is going back over 10 years I agreed to draw people's dogs on the condition that they donated a certain amount of money to the rescue so it became a fundraising project for Boston Buddies and um I received so many requests for dog drawings that it that sort of became a full-time unpaid job <laughs> and I decided okay well there's I should make some money <laughs> and I started charging for these dog drawings and then I, I became like a professional pet portrait artist so that's how I started um and then when Boogie started exhibiting behavior issues that's kind of when the training related drawing started right so Boogie yeah. he, he bit your building manager didn't he yeah, he... <laughs> I wasn't there. I mean, he was on the porch one day with my neighbor and I was in my apartment. I live in an apartment building that is, there's a central courtyard, there's no fence. Um, and he was sitting on the porch with my neighbor and 
one of the building managers walked through. Apparently, she walked through every day and he would bark at her from behind the window, but I didn't know that. Um, and this time she was walking towards him, yelling into her cell phone. And apparently he ran up to her and ran and bit her on the leg and there was a big puncture wound. So I got an eviction notice. I got a notice from the manager, the property manager, saying that I could either get rid of my dog, I would have to get rid of my dog or move out. And it was a pretty devastating, stressful time because I didn't want to move out and I wasn't going to get rid of my dog. So I said, I'll do anything, you know, I'll do anything at all if you could let me stay. Like I'll get a trainer, <laughs> I will pay, you know. I mean, I did end up getting rental insurance. I had a petition signed by all my neighbours saying that I was a responsible person. Um, and my landlord said to me, well, you know, maybe you should get on that dog whisperer show because, <laughs> you know, I've always wanted to be an actor. <laughs> and I I took it seriously. I made phone calls and I called around and I, you know, I spoke to, uh, I got in touch with the producer of the show and they said, okay, can you send us in some footage of your dog being aggressive? This sounds like a really great human interest story. Let's do it. I said, well, I can't get you footage because then I would have to make him aggressive to get that footage. And I don't really want to put anyone's life in danger. And they said, well, we need that footage because if you can't get that footage, we can't have him on the show. So that didn't happen. And I just Googled the first dog trainer I could find because I needed to prove to my landlord that I could fix the situation. I could fix my dog so that he will never bite again because I had to make that promise to him to, so that I could stay in my apartment. So I found a dog trainer, the first person on Google, and I said, can you write me a guarantee that you can fix my dog? And they said, yes, we can. Oh, wow. And they actually signed a piece of paper saying that, you know, yes, we, you know, we'll fix this dog. He'll be fine. And... They put a prong collar on him and they and he was supposed to wear this 24-7 and there was this whole list of rules and an obedience program, a six-week six week obedience program that I had to follow. And um, I did everything they told me to do and it was, well, the, the short stories, I'm not going to go into details, but the short stories that he, well, he got worse because he was constantly being corrected. Like, I mean, I had to jerk him on this chain and he was – you know, even when he was crying, they would say, oh, no, he's, he's not in pain. He's just being a drama queen. You need to correct him harder. So, um, well, this went on for a few weeks, and I was feeling all kinds of stress and doubt about whether this was the way to go. I didn't know there was any other way to train dogs. Um, this was all I knew, and I knew I watched the Dog Whisperer show. I had this trainer, and I thought that's all it is, you know. But... Um, it wasn't working. Boogie was was lunging more at people. He was becoming more aggressive towards strangers. Um, so I, I think it was the Dogster behavior column. I wrote into Dogster, and Grisha Stewart was responding to questions. And I said, um, I wrote to Grisha and I said, "Hi, I I have a dog who's aggressive towards people. He's on a prong collar, and it's helping him." 
be more quiet and calm, but he's still lunging at people. And I don't know how this prom call is going to help. I don't know how to make him like people. And she said, well, first of all, get rid of the prong collar and look into something called BAT, which is, you know, behavior adjustment training, which is what she was developing at the time, um, which led me onto down this rabbit hole of dog trainers on the internet discussing positive reinforcement techniques. What, what made you initially seek out the help from Grisha? Was it the fact that it wasn't working or was it that you were uncomfortable with using the prong collar or was it both? It was both. It wasn't working. I didn't understand how it could fix my dog. I, I really, you know, I mean, it was making him more stressed. He was more fearful of people than before. So I didn't see how it was working, fix an aggression problem. And also my, the trainer's, didn't weren't really open to anything else because I had started I was reading other books at that time I was trying to learn different methods and I picked up a book on clicker training and I talked to my trainers about you know hey can we try the clicker this sounds really cool and they said no we don't do that I have no comment about that (laughs) so they weren't open to it how did you come across Grisha and Dogster? Was that just a Google search again or, or a recommendation or how did you find them? Um, I was already, I think I was already following dogster.com. Um, I'm, I don't know. I don't remember actually. Okay. I might have already been reading that stuff on that website. Yeah, possibly because you were already blogging, right? So maybe you were just in, involved yeah. in that blogging scene. and yeah. And then I, there was a Yahoo group called Functional Rewards. And I don't know if you remember that. It was. I'm a little, probably a little bit too young for Yahoo groups. Although I. <laughs> <laughs> and my. No, I, I did have MySpace. I remember my MySpace. And um, <laughs> I've been told a lot about the Yahoo groups actually from, you know, a lot of people have told me that their Yahoo groups were the place to be at one point, you know, and there were lots of yeah. very talented trainers on them and stuff. Well, that's where I met Sarah Owings and she became our trainer <laughs> for Boogie. Was she local to you then? Yes, yes. I was um, looking for somebody local to me and she lived near me like about 10, 15 minutes away. Uh, this, so seems, this seems like incredible fortune to reach out to Grisha Stewart then yeah. to find Sarah Owings, <laughs> like these are these are two incredible dog trainers. You know, both of them have been yeah. on the podcast. You know, um, they're really phenomenal dog trainers. It's not like you you found any positive trainers. You found people that really lead in the industry. Well, this was like a long time ago, <laughs> so they were. So they were they guess. were in their progression as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and I remember Sarah was sort of new. She just graduated from Karen Pryor okay. Academy. Um, and yeah, this was before Grisha wrote the Bat Book. So so I was blogging my adventures. I mean, I, I guess I stopped going to the first trainer and I started working with Sarah. We were doing Bat and I was learning all this stuff that was just so amazing to me about dog body language, about you know, calming signals. I mean, all these things that at the time nobody knew about. I mean, like I said, this is going back about 10 years. 
Um, and I was thinking to myself, why doesn't anybody know about this stuff? Because they don't mention body language on the dog whisperer show. Um, none of the sort of aversive trainers know, talk about. Yeah, or if they do talk about it, it's like this means dominance, isn't it? Like I remember when I started out, I was a huge fan of the dog whisperer. And as I was watching it, I was trying to make sense of it. I thought that things like if my dog had its ears forward, that it was being dominant. And I would like correct them for that because I thought that that was what I had to do. You know? Wow. Yeah. And that, and a bit, I was reading your blog about crossing over and all that kind of stuff. And it spoke to me because of the same thing. I went through the same stuff. You know, I was a huge fan of Dog Whisperer and I was just trying to do the right thing. But in retrospect, I was. I was being so horrible to my dog. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I was making him cry and, you know, and I had to push him down to make him go down. And I mean, I was told that if he lifted his leg to pee in the tree, that was a sign of dominance. Oh, and my I said, gosh. I'm like, but isn't that normal? Don't all boy dogs lift that? She said, no, he could squat. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, one trainer, one trainer once told me, the um one way to establish your dominance over male dogs is to pee over their pee. What? <laughs> <laughs> did people seriously do that? Well, this like, guy did. Know, <laughs> well, like just in public. <laughs> well, I assume it was discreet, oh, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was some, I mean, the whole dominance theory stuff and that kind of era. I feel like we're getting out of the dominance era now. Well, I feel like I'm feeling pretty positive about that. You know, I don't know because I still hear people say, use the dominance stuff here in LA. I think because season Milan is a big deal in LA. Well, isn't, wasn't the show based out of LA? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that's got anything to do with it. I don't know. I can only say from my experiences, I mean, of course you get questions about dominance and stuff, but it doesn't feel like there's the same, um, oh, what's the word, you know, like there's the same determination that everything's about dominance, right? And it that spawned some really strange beliefs, didn't it? The whole dominance stuff. Yeah, like if you're sitting on the couch and your dog put his, puts his head on your lap, like, I've had people say, "Oh, he's showing dominance." So, you know. Oh, he's showing dominance. <laughs> he's showing dominance. <laughs> like, like I don't know if they can hear that, but uh, but is that Boogie? Yeah, that's Boogie. Yeah, Boogie's barking in the background, perfectly timed. <laughs> so, one thing that's interesting about your journey, Lily, is. Um, I hear people with similar stories to you all the time, but they went down the route of becoming professional dog trainers. So did you ever think about that? No, I'm a terrible trainer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sloppy. (laughs) No, I, um, no, I, I, I mean, I was already drawing and I like drawing, so that was a skill I had, so that's what I worked with. Did, yeah, you felt. Did you feel like that was the way to get this message across after you had already become passionate about it through your own experiences? Yeah, yeah. Also, um, I was so obsessed with my own dog that I mean, I 
I was for many years I really I just wanted to, I wanted him to be happy like I wanted to fix him I wanted him to stop being to stop biting people and so you know all my energy was on him I really didn't think about other dogs <laughs> That's really interesting because I think that a lot yeah. of people you know, they go down that kind of route and they start working with their own dog and then maybe they start acquiring some knowledge about dog training. Then people start asking them questions and then before you know it, they're helping people and they, you know, and they just kind of go down this yeah. path of becoming a, a dog trainer. Whereas it sounds like, you know, you were a little bit more laser focused on just helping Boogie. Yeah, I was fo focused on helping him and just sharing the information I was getting from dog trainers. Uh, I guess I'm not I'm not a people person. You'd have to be a people person to be a, a dog trainer because you're dealing with Well we like to <laughs> we like to think so, although I think there's a lot of dog trainers that that I you know, that's a classic, isn't it? So many dog trainers say they you know, they or so many people that want to become dog trainers say, um, I love dogs more than people. But they, of course a lot of people don't realise that most of the job is coaching people. Yeah, you're kind of like being a therapist in a way. <laughs> yeah, there's a huge <laughs> amount of people. empathy, a huge amount of empathy yeah. that goes into it. Yeah. And having to relate to people that are struggling, you know, like you, you know, when Boogie bit someone and then, like, it's a hugely emotional time, isn't it? You know, you're thinking about, you think you might be evicted. There are people that are considering rehoming their dogs or euthanizing their dogs and yeah. you know they're really emotional about that yeah and there's all um living with the fear too that at any moment it could happen again and then you know animal control will come and take him away so you are, so, are you still in the same building i am i'm still in the same building okay so, <laughs> so, so far so good then <laughs> <laughs> So how did you end up creating these p educational posters? Well, I had a blog for Boogie, um, boogiebt.com, which I haven't updated in ages because, you know, life's just too busy. Um, I started writing about my training adventures as I was learning from Sarah and Grisha and other trainers. I just shared, it was like a diary in a way, and I did illustrations because um, drawings, Drawing things down helps me remember concepts. So it was more for myself, but other people said they were great and they said it helped them too. That reminds so me I of. That, that um, went viral. That reminds me, I think there's a, a Richard Feynman quote where he says, if you want to get good at something, teach it. And I imagine it's the same kind of thing as what you just said, you know, like it cements that thought in your brain when you draw yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean pictures speak louder than words too, I think. So Right. It's like a shorthand uh-huh. Yeah, it's like a shorthand method for me of remembering something, like taking it's taking notes in well, a visual way. Well the great thing about illustrations and infographics and all of this kind of visual stuff is in the age of the internet, all of that stuff is so shareable and you can reach so many more people than you would just with words. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only danger of that is that if something isn't accurate and it gets shared, <laughs> I mean, there've been times when I've drawn stuff and 
I've tried to illustrate a concept and I wasn't, I was still learning about it and like my choice of words might not be great and the stuff gets shared and then, you know, and I think, oh, I wish I could have written that differently or I wish I could have done that differently, but it's too late and sound on the internet. So there's also that problem. And also, I guess the risk of people stealing your work, right? Because I know that you've struggled a lot with that. Yeah. I think that most artists that build a following probably do struggle with that at some point, I would imagine. All my artist friends, I mean, most of my artist friends have experienced theft. Um, it happens a lot. How how do you deal with something like that? Um, well, I think I've become a lot less... Um, I mean, I, I, I'm less emotional about it now than I used to be. I mean, I used to panic and get really upset. I'm a lot more calm now, I guess, because it's happened so often that I'm almost used to it. Oh, wow. Uh, but I have I have lawyers who handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a big corporation stealing my stuff, which has happened a few times, um, my lawyers take care of that. Do you ever mm-hmm. get... Um... Do you ever get like refunded or or recuperate the costs of all of that kind of stuff? Because I imagine that if you're constantly having to chase people that are stealing your work, that must yeah, get really expensive. Yeah, well, well, that that's what my lawyers do. They try and get me paid, and I can't talk about this. <laughs> okay, no worries, no worries. Well, I, okay, so you started creating these posters. When did that? How did that start then? So you started creating the posters on your blog and these images. Yes. Was it Sophia Yin that you first started making the? So, so at that time, now I have to think back. I mean, because this was a long time ago, I contacted Sophia Yin because I found her website and her books, and she was like a hero to me. And I thought I want to work for Sophia Yin, so I emailed her, and I sent her images that I'd done, like body language images, and she commissioned some drawings of her dogs and then she hired me to do the, uh, that little video about body like you know um i can't remember what it was called but it was about how not to approach a fearful dog um stress signals in dogs and then i started working for her which was great um so so she was one person i contacted cold i mean she might only she might be the only person i've contacted cold like out of the blue um but Grisha had seen the drawings I'd done of that on my blog and she hired me to illustrate her book. So, so how did I think it, it started around then. Okay, so if you that's interesting. That's a little interesting insight there. So you don't actually tend to reach out cold to people. How do you network and come across all of these amazing people? I've been incredibly lucky because um a lot of the work I get has been through word of mouth. Like you know, when something you know, people recommend me or people refer me. Um, I mean, for years I didn't yeah. even have a proper website or Facebook or social media. It was all word of mouth. But I, I really needed, but I it wasn't making enough money, so I had to take it to the next level. And social media has helped a lot. Well, yeah. I mean, you've built up such an amazing portfolio from a dog training perspective. You know, working with Grisha Stewart and Sophia Yin and. Yeah. And all of these posters that you've made. And I can't even begin to imagine how many people have seen your artwork and have like learned stuff from that. 
you know, so yeah. many people ha- have these in their classes, have them in the vets, have them, you know, and and from seeing, you know, just from seeing people interact with them, like one thing that's cool about your art as well is it draws children in as well. So like it's something that children yeah. will like go and look at. Like Livy was telling me because they have it in the shop that, you know, if children are causing a bit of mayhem in the shop, then she'll say, oh, you know, see if you can find your dog on uh on this poster <laughs> and stuff like that you know like it gets it gets the kids like interested in learning this stuff that's really cool yeah, yeah but i that's think great. i don't think that's unique to to me though i think everyone's has these experiences with having the posters yeah. up and i don't know that there was anything before that like i don't know that i'm not you would probably know better than me but i i haven't you know, if I think of educational posters for dog stuff, you immediately come to mind. I'm not sure how many other people are, are producing that kind of content. Well, I know when I first started doing body language, dog body language drawings, nobody had done them. I mean, I have the Brenda Aloft book, and the most of them are photos. And I know there's a Roger Brantes book, which has more realistic illustrations in them. But, yeah, it, I... I wasn't aware of anybody else doing this. Yeah, and, I, and- I, I I love realistic images, but your style is going to be particularly appealing for um, children, especially and younger audiences. Yeah. I mean, that must I imagine that comes from doing the animated stuff. Yeah, I mean, how did you develop that kind of style? Oh God, I don't know how to answer that question. Because <laughs> <laughs> doing it, <laughs> I, I mean, I. I mean, it started with Boogie, my dog. Like, I mean, I live with him, so I see him all the time and I see all his different poses and expressions. So, it, yeah, I mean, it kind of start. I guess it started with just me recording what I see at home. <laughs> but even with the stuff that you've done that isn't dogs, like, it's very clearly you that's, that's drawn it. Right. Which stuff? Like, even when I, um, when I, made had the realization that you had done mucha lucha like it's similar in ways to your dog stuff i don't know it's i suppose it's like um you know i I try and go for a simple a simple style and i like bright colors have you always drawn like that uh no no i mean i mean i've worked in different styles i mean it really depends on the project yeah yeah. I mean, I before I did Mucha Lucha, I was a freelance um, animation cleanup artist and in-betweener. I don't know if you know what that is. But no, it's no. Like we back are... in the day, <laughs> it's like traditional animation before computers when people used to flip paper and draw on paper. And, oh, wow. Cool. And draw all the in-between drawings on by hand on paper. I mean, okay. I was one of those people. Uh-huh. And um, I had to adapt to whatever style the animation show was drawn in so do you have a nostalgia for that as well because i know like we we had a conversation before we did this podcast like my girlfriend was involved in animation a bit as well and when so by proxy you know we've watched loads of animation stuff and she always she prefers certain styles of animation like she talks about like she definitely has a there's almost like a, a what what i don't know what the word would be there's almost like 
there's definitely a preference for the old like animation the yeah. drawn stuff and yeah is that something that you relate to yeah <laughs> yes, I, do. I do i mean um i love upa cartoons i don't know if it's from like the 50s and 60s um yeah i mean hand-drawn animation is like a dying art almost right everyone's doing 3D animation these days. My, I mean, I came from the world of 2D just mm-hmm. at the time when things were switching over to computers. Yeah, or even like, okay. um, is it stop motion, like Isle of Dogs and? Yeah, that's stop motion. That's like an old school style. Too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And it's as well. Nice to see it on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, what what advice would you have for people that? maybe want to do something like what you're doing with illustrating dogs? Um, <laughs> well, uh, just do it, I guess. Um, <laughs> very Nike, very Nike. <laughs> well, you know, this wasn't planned. I didn't plan any of this. It just happened quite naturally. But- um, I started drawing my dog and then I started drawing about my dog's training um and then i was with dogs of the world i was interested to learn about different breeds and i that sort of became a project in itself um so basically everything i do i guess i'm personally interested i'm personally invested in it in some way and then you know it's getting it out there and having it be seen and and i'm really fortunate that a lot of people know my work, so you know it gets shared. And the the reason I ask is because you know there there must be thousands of people that are doing pet portraits and stuff, mm. but obviously, I mean, very few of them are, are seemingly even doing that full time. You know, a lot of people are doing that part time or as a hobby. Yeah. Or... Well, I couldn't survive just doing pet portraits full time, and I'm really glad that I've branched off into doing other things because nowadays. I sell my art on Etsy. I have an online shop. Um, I make pins. I make posters. I license my work to companies. Like I've, There are blankets with my designs on them. Um, I get paid royalties based on sales. Um, I also license my stuff to like stationery companies and there's like a jigsaw puzzle company. Um, and... Don't worry about that. <laughs> no worries, it's all right. I'm creating new things to sell. So, so I'm. It's. I. I mean, I wouldn't be able to survive on pet portraits alone. Is that, I, I have to do other things. Is that the key? And take permission. Is that the key then? Like diversifying, and and having lots and lots of different products. Um, I don't know if that's the key, but it's working for me. Like, I mean, I. I like having that variety in my life. I like having different kinds of projects to work on. Like I just finished um, illustrating a book, a storybook. It's a collaboration with an author. Um, she, it, It's a dog-related book. It's just a sweet little story. And that will be coming out sometime this year. So hopefully that will sell, people will buy it. Um, so it's just creating. I mean, I, I'm interested in just creating new things and things that I like that I hope other people will like as well. Yeah, because from following you on social media and your Etsy shop and stuff, you seem to, like, create a lot. You know, you seem to 
do you do create quite a lot of new products and i think that a lot of people view um the that kind of stuff as maybe being passive income right like i just you know i make five designs and i put them on etsy and, yeah, and well, i'll become a millionaire yeah. <laughs> it's not making me a millionaire but, uh, <laughs> it's definitely i you know um i guess as i grow older i'm thinking more towards passiving the passive income model is like becoming more attractive um because i when i was doing pet portraits and commissions full time and that was all i did it was really exhausting like, i couldn't stop i couldn't take holidays i couldn't go anywhere um if i didn't work i didn't couldn't pay the rent so i had to be constantly drawing um, and the wonderful thing about having a shop and stuff to sell is that, and licensing is that I can slow down <laughs> and, you know, work on things I really want to work on, even if they don't pay, do free stuff, you know. Yeah, because I think that that must be really scary. I mean, I think that a lot of people find self-employment scary, and I guess it is the same for dog trainers and dog walkers and stuff. You know, if we don't have clients, we can't pay the bills in the same way. Um, but yeah. it seems like another jump to put art out there online and just hope for the there's almost like a detachment isn't there right you're just hoping that someone's going to come across your page or uh, well you have to actively promote your stuff on social media as well and that's another thing that i don't always enjoy doing but you know it's it's right well that's that's what we want to hear about lily like how does this work how do you how does someone you know get get to you know, follow this career path, and maybe they're already doing a few pet portraits for friends. How do they, how do they do that stuff on social media and build a following? Um. Well, I think you have to do something that you're really interested in. First of all, whatever it is you create, you have to be into it. Um. I like to think that everything I do is, you know, important enough that other people will be interested in it besides myself. Um, And then to get it on the internet so that in a way that, you know, it's shareable, it's something people want to share. Um, So like Dogs of the World, I mean, that was something that went viral and it's still viral. And I guess nobody had done that before, like, you know, illustrate 366 dog breeds in one style and put it on a map. And I knew when I did that, I thought, nobody's done this. I, I, I'm the first person to do this. Do you and I think it's going to go? Yeah. Before you release something, do you get a sense of whether it's going to go viral or be popular or is it all just guesswork? I get a sense. <laughs> I, I, I have a small sense that something will be popular. Even if it doesn't happen immediately, I know that eventually it will happen because it hasn't been done before and nobody's seen it before. Okay, that's interesting. And where'd you get the, these ideas? Like when I did, so, so with the bod, like doggy language, the one of Boogie and all the different poses, when I first did that, and I think it was 2009 or 2011, I can't remember what year it was, um, I had a feeling that it was going to go viral because nobody had done it before, but then nothing happened for like three years. And then suddenly it went viral. Wow. Really? I I guess the right, I don't know, maybe the Buzzfeed or somebody saw it and then it went viral and then suddenly people were stealing. (laughs) um, Really? so, So I think even if things don't go viral immediately, there is, possibility they will at the right time did you did you ever find out how that kind of took off 
it's usually like one of those one of those big websites like BuzzFeed or The Bark or um do do you intentionally yeah. plan that when you are releasing something, you know, do you try to go to maybe some of the big blogs or you know, do you post it on Reddit or do you try and make that virality no, happen? No, no, I'm not. I'm actually not a very proactive social media person. I do the bare minimum. <laughs> I post it on my Facebook. I post it on Instagram and my Twitter and that's pretty much it. And then, you know, if it goes, it goes. What about the distribution? You know, we see your posters in vets and dog trainers and shops and all this kind of stuff. Is that something that you actively pursue or is it more the other way around? Well, I have a page on my website, doggydrawings.net slash free posters. And I, this is all stuff that's free for people to download. So and I presume that people are going to my website and downloading and printing this stuff and putting them up. I, I guess with, is that like a strategy? Again, there's another strategy, right? Like is, is the free stuff part of that idea of maybe trying to get it shared more? Well, it's the main thing is to get it shared more. Um, if it's freely available, then it's ex- accessible to more people. It's easy for people to obtain. And the other thing, which is good for me too, is that it's less work for me. <laughs> Like, I mean, I don't have to have a transaction with anyone. They can just go and download it because it takes, I mean, it takes time to print things out. Like when people buy prints from my shop, I I manually physically print every oh, print wow. on my printer. Oh, wow. I um, thought that you you might have outsourced that. No, Well, the big poster, I can't do that on my printer because it can only print up to a certain size. The big poster is outsourced, but everything else I print myself. So it's actually work and time and and money, like buying ink and maintaining the printer and all that stuff. So, so for me, offering posters for free where people can print it themselves is also helpful to me. It saves me time. Have you invested a lot in the equipment, like printers and stuff? I've got um, an Epson eight hundred P eight hundred. I think it's called. That means it's, nothing it's, to me. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an expensive giant printer, but the quality is really good. Oh, yeah. wow. And the ink is really expensive. How did you develop your skill as an artist? Is that something you were doing when you were a kid, or is it something you meaningfully practiced? I've been drawing since I was a kid, um, and the, I didn't think I would make a career of it. It was just something I liked doing. Um, but... In my 20s, I wanted to work in animation. I knew I wanted to work in animation. So I I feel like a lot of my skill was developed on the job working in animation because I had to do so much drawing and adapt to so many different styles. So I wasn't formally trained. I mean, I did go to life drawing classes when I was younger, but I don't, unlike a lot of professional artists, I didn't have a formal education in art. A lot of it was just me. Yeah, just learning. So how did you working. how did you get the gig in in animation? Um, I did a short course. This was back in Australia. I did a short course in animation techniques. There weren't any major courses in the nineties. Um, and then I, the person who was teaching the course, I approached him and 
offered myself as an intern and do work experience and I worked for free for three months just learning the techniques and you know and then eventually I got hired and got paid for it and then you know it was just all word of mouth from there on because I know that a lot of people that study animation don't end up going on to go into it and and I think that's the same in everything you know I remember when I was training and I did my um, degree in canine behavior like very few people actually came out the other end and then the people that did come out the other end very few of them actually went on to become professional trainers so it seems like you had a particular determination especially to approach someone and say I'll work for free yeah yeah I I really wanted to do it (laughs) was that a difficult thing to do did you were Um, you like did you have bills to pay and all that kind of stuff oh I was broke I was completely broke I had um I was so broke that I was living in this tiny room which was like the size of a bathroom and there wasn't a chair so I had to draw standing up and (laughs) I mean like (laughs) yeah I mean I kind of went through a period of being completely broke as I was trying to get into the animation world. It's really interesting to hear people's stories from when they weren't so successful, because I think that people, you know, they look at someone like you and they just think, you know, hugely successful person. They've always been like that. You know, they don't realize that. Yeah. It's taken many years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, it's just really interesting to to hear that because I wouldn't have. I mean, it's it's just a bias, isn't it? You don't you see someone that is is you perceive as being really successful, and you don't realize that you know at one point they were broke. You know, like there's a story that I've told I told it on the last podcast actually about you know I remember driving back from a, a dog training course and running out of petrol and not being able to um, not being able to pay for the petrol to get home. Right? Oh, yeah. And like, I started listening to that podcast, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like how embarrassing that was. And for me, that was a, a kind of sign that, oh my God, you know, I need to start to understand business and, and learn how to make more money. I can't just be obsessed with training dogs because otherwise I just end up relying on everyone else and that's not fair on anyone. And the guilt that comes from that as well. Did you go through yeah. any of that kind of that kind of phase? Um, well, I've been really lucky because when I had, I mean, for years I was broke and then I, I was broke because I was trying to get into animation and I made very little money for, as a freelancer for a long time, but I also worked really hard. I mean, this is like when I had the energy to to, to work hard when I was younger, <laughs> I don't have that energy now. Um, I worked really hard and I'd be doing like, three jobs at a time I had no life um but fortunately I somehow got into the animation industry and people hired me and I got referrals and I got a lot of work and I've been really lucky that I just I've been working ever since then like I've never I've never been unemployed I mean since my 20s when you moved to LA, at that point, I assume that you know you sold your series. I assume that you no longer broke living in a, <laughs> in a tiny <laughs> in a tiny room. Were you kind of way past that at that point? Well, 
there wasn't it's been up and down I mean when I moved to LA we got a lot of money because we sold a show so for a while life was good but then when um, my partner and I split up and I moved out of animation and started drawing pet portraits I sort of you know things were life was hard again I wasn't making any money I was living off savings so it's been up and down but since then thankfully it's been I've been doing better each year as as I diversify and meet new clients and do different things after you sold your show what made you decide I want to go out and get a dog I know that you you're you're very interested in Boston Terriers what kind of spawned that um I've I've always wanted a dog, but I never felt that I was settled enough anywhere. I didn't know when I was going to be moving again. So that was the only thing that prevented me from getting a dog. Um, at that time, I had lived in L.A. for a few years, and I felt quite settled, and I felt like I was ready to take on the responsibility of having a dog. I'd also fostered a few dogs, so I knew I could do it. I knew that, you know, I wasn't totally crap at it. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that the purpose of the fostering? Did you Was that partially a test for yourself to see that you could look after a dog? <laughs> Well, yeah, sort of. I also got talked into fostering by my friend who worked for Boston Bible. She's like, yeah, why don't you take care of this dog? And and, and then I really liked it. I mean, okay. my first foster was a 13-year-old Boston Terrier. She was shit palsy. She had cancer. She was deaf. She had, there was so many things medically wrong with her. She had seizures. So it was a lot of, it was really a lot of work taking care of this dog and after that like you know I can have my own dog I can do this and then my second foster dog was blind he was nine years old and he bumped into everything and he was really sad and then he started having seizures as well and then he passed away um so when I adopted Boogie he had this clean bill of health and I thought he's like the perfect dog he's so great like you know there's nothing wrong with him he's physically healthy even my partner at the time said there's nothing wrong with this dog he's perfect and then he bit someone so boston's kind of found you as opposed to the other way around it wasn't like you you had a real thing for boston's from the start no 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 i didn't they found me i i started fostering and then i just fell in love with boston's that's interesting was there a different breed that you had your eye on um well, I, I was interested in beagles and okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I did have a soft spot for French bulldogs too. So okay, it's just interesting to see to hear what could have been. You know, all those dog posters could have been beagles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, even now, you know, is is have you got any interest in getting more dogs? Well, not right now because. Um, well, you know, Boogie's old, he's 14, and he's starting to develop sort of some issues. And I live in a small apartment, so is the is, is this book that you've got coming out is that kind of the big thing you're working on right now? Can I, where where does this go from here for you? Um, well, I'm also hoping to do another series of posters or a book that is inspired by Susan, Dr. Susan Friedman's Living and Learning with Animals course, oh, wow. which I did last year. 
I don't know if you know that course. Yeah, um, everyone uh, rants yeah. about how amazing it is. I know. Well, I um, she gifted me the course last year, and I did it, and I was really inspired by it, and and I wanted to do something with what I learned. So that's on the agenda for this year as well. Oh wow, that's amazing! What kind of, I mean, if you can tell us what kind of things uh, have you got in mind? What's really what... well? It'll be well. I mean, it'll be concepts. Um, I guess behavior concepts. Oh wow! Illustrated in a way that hopefully lay people like me can understand. Well, that's the challenge I'm setting myself. So we're getting a little bit more geeky, but trying to communicate it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so are we talking about like operant conditioning, classical conditioning, or yeah, yeah, that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Matching law. <laughs> oh wow! Oh cool. Is Susan working on that with you? Is she going to help guide? She's going to help me. She is going to be a collaboration. Oh wow, awesome. Well that's really cool because obviously it's it seems like you started that journey with Sophia Yin and you know, you got things going yeah. and, and now to kind of do a second round and continue all of that good stuff that you've been doing with the educational Yeah stuff with someone as amazing as Susan Friedman, what a brilliant way of carrying that on. Yeah, well you see I don't I don't think this dominance thing is has died yet you know i'm still going strong around here and um, so you know so is that part of it is that is that part of it then trying to bust the myths of uh dominance yeah yeah but i you know i i mean it's going to be a challenge because i don't know yet how i'm going to do this um you know i listen to your podcast to get tips on how people communicate <laughs> how, how dog trainers communicate what they know and um you know, I read and well, that's usually flattering. That's usually flattering. Yeah. Actually, maybe we should tell that story because I just sent a message to you and I was just saying, like, a really, you know, your work is awesome. And then you you sent me back a message and said that you were listening to the podcast, which is was hugely flattering for me because um, it's awesome to know that someone like you listens. Someone like me, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great. I, I mean, I love. I mean, I love learning about behavior, and I love learning about how people communicate uh-huh. this information. Yeah, because I mean, so much of the time, you know, well, that's that's basically what we do, isn't it? As as professional dog trainers, we're having to communicate all of these concepts, like you know, we were just talking about operant, classical, you know, all of these geeky behaviorism concepts to people. Right, and like that's the biggest challenge a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean there are a lot of big words as well. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean that wouldn't come up in normal conversations, so. and they don't. You know, when we do these one to one sessions with people, if I'm just working with a dog owner, it's not like I'm, you know, talking about all these geeky concepts. It's normally, I think, a sign that you're doing it right is when the person says, um, "Oh, it's it's." It's as simple as that. Like, oh, you know, they could say little remarks like that. Like, oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, know, I think that's a good sign when you get those kind of comments that you're you're explaining it well. Yeah. And I think a lot of... 
it, I mean, I wouldn't be taking on the full responsibility of communicating this stuff. I mean, I would be, you know, consulting with Susan Friedman and dog trainer friends and, you know, like I'm something that I was working on a few weeks ago, like I was checking in with John Rugen and Sarah Owings and, you know, they're helping me understand stuff. So, so that I can re-communicate it. How do you so, go about... You know, that? I'm not completely alone in this. <laughs> well, no, you're in great company. That's why I was asking you about networking yeah. because you've got this amazing community and um, I thought if you hadn't said that, I would have assumed that you had been proactive in, in kind of building these relationships with people. And I'm sure that you have, but yeah. you've not just sent people emails, which is something I do all the time. <laughs> Like, what sort of emails? <laughs> Sorry? What sort of emails? Well, like the email that I sent you, right? Oh, okay. Um, like, if I like someone's stuff, then I want to let them know that I, you know, appreciate that. And, yeah. um, like, that's what we should be doing, right? It's like positive. And I was really excited to get your email. I was so excited because I just listened to a podcast, like, you know, like the day before. <laughs> so I think, oh, my God, <laughs> Why would he want to talk to me? <laughs> well, <laughs> Why? No, I'm not a dog trainer. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think that so much of the time, you know, we preach all this stuff about positive reinforcement, but we spend time on Facebook saying we hate this or we hate that. And instead of reaching out to the people whose work that we do like and saying, you know, I think you're doing an awesome job or sharing the stuff that um that you like you know so, uh, like the yeah. one that frustrates the hell out of me is when someone shares a post and says oh my god i hate how he did this and it's like well, why yeah. are you sharing it then <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so i think that that's that's a big key you know letting people know that it's just kind of reinforcing behavior isn't it yeah it is very tempting though sometimes when you see something you don't like and i mean like if I see somebody yelling at their dog on the street and I want to, you know, I want to say something about that yeah, online. Yeah. <laughs> what an asshole, you know. <laughs> to his dog. And, yeah. And I, I mean, I do want to turn it into a poster and then I have to think about, well, okay, what is the positive message here? What else can I say? Yeah, I think that that's it. It is very tempting to get mad and... Oh, yeah. And you do. Like, we all get mad. It's just trying to be productive about it, isn't it? Yeah. Because I do think that it's better to show people a different way than it, more so than it is to slate them. You know, like, you were talking about your own experiences about, um, you know, using the prong collars and not getting the results you wanted and also feeling guilty about it. You know, if someone had just responded to you with more criticism of the prong collar, well, that doesn't tell you how to solve your problem, right? That doesn't tell you how to actually resolve it. Actually, when I had Boogie on a prong collar, I remember one day I was walking him and I corrected him for something. And this woman yelled out at me from across the street, you're an animal abuser. And I was, I, I mean, that was the first time somebody actually, you know, told me that what I was doing was wrong and I remember going home in tears feeling terrible thinking like no I'm not an animal abuser but I didn't understand why I was being called that and I remember calling my trainer at the time and said somebody just called me an animal abuser and they said oh don't listen to them 
<laughs> you know, like, like, you know, and so it doesn't help. I remember I was in the local park and <clears throat> and I had been told that if my Labrador doesn't come back, then the answer to that is to smack him on the butt, right? Like that is how you train him to come back. If he doesn't come back, you you get him and you smack him. And I was in the park and he didn't come back. And I remember just feeling so guilty. Like I felt like I was doing something wrong. And But I've, that was what I've been told I had to do. So I remember yeah. looking around to see if anyone was there and then getting him and then smacking him on the butt because that's what I thought I had to do. And then seeing someone in the distance watching me and thinking, oh, my, you know, and feeling all guilty about it. Oh, so yeah. subconscious, you know, like subconsciously, yeah. I knew that was wrong. But yeah. I thought that was what you had to do. Right. Like yeah. if someone had told me a different way of doing it that worked. I would have signed up straight away. I just wanted the result, right? And that's... What, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't want to be doing it. How- yeah, I think... I mean, there's a lot of information that I think people just take for granted. They don't realise that it's wrong. Um, like, I was talking to somebody the other day, well, two years a while ago, and I mentioned something about training, and she said, oh, I, I, I'm... I don't believe in training. I'm not, you know, training is for alpha types. It's not for me. I'm not an alpha type. <laughs> so immediately I thought, oh, my God, how do I even talk about that? How do I even start a discussion? And 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 this sort of all ties into my wanting to why I draw infographics and why I do these posters because I, I guess I'm – personally not very good at communicating this this stuff verbally like when I'm put on the spot I don't you know I'm not skilled at right explaining well that's not what you Um, do is it you know like we have the luxury of doing that every day but you know a dog trainer would yeah that's what I mean yeah that's what I mean because we have to do that as a as a career yeah yeah so so I guess my way is of you know putting it on paper yeah but you something. you excel far more the, at that than any of us do you know i if you saw my dog posters <laughs> <laughs> in fact we um uh we did an illustration for uh, for one of my blogs like probably like two years ago what we i say we um my girlfriend did because she's an illustrator as well and yeah. I, she asked me what i want i'm gonna have to put this in the show notes because it's so funny and i drew it <laughs> And I drew it, and honestly, this doesn't communicate well via audio. You need to see the picture. <laughs> we have a comparison <laughs> photo, and it is so funny. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Okay. I'm just laughing so much. Well, even well, thinking you know, I, I do ask, sometimes I do ask my clients to do sketches. I say, you know, if it helps me get that, you know, because I, I do a lot of work because I don't train this. And sometimes I need to see something or I, you know maybe yeah. it might help if you you know rough sketch of what you have in mind and i can work with that well so you should see my I'm rough very, sketch <laughs> i'm very unjudgmental with these things <laughs> i'll show you it after we get off this call i'll show you it and um and okay. you can tell me if you would be able to understand what it is <laughs> all right okay, I'll, I'll take on that challenge <laughs> well where can people find out more about you and your work lily um, well, I guess my website is doggydrawings.net. That's D-O-G-G-I-E 
doggydrawings.net. And uh, my shop is doggydrawings.xc.com. That's D-O-G-G-I-E-D-R-A-W-I-N-G-S dot E-T-S-Y dot com. That's where I sell stuff. Um, and I'm also on Facebook, Doggy Drawings, and um, Instagram and Twitter. So Brilliant. If well, you just search for my name, Lily Chin, you'll, I think you'll find well, thanks so much for, for coming on because it's a real pleasure to talk to you and I've admired your work for so long. To get the opportunity to to actually talk is, is a real honour. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so thrilled. Um, I, yeah, it, it's a big... I mean, I'm nervous because I've never done this before, but it's been a lot of fun. Oh, I'm sure it's the first of many. I'm sure yeah. that... Uh, I'm sure you'll be on lots of different podcasts, so I'm glad that I got in there first. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Don't forget to join us to chat about the podcast on Facebook. You can do that by searching for the group Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group you can also help me out by leaving an itunes review or stitcher review of the podcast or just sharing with a friend that might be interested as always if you want to grab the show notes for this episode then you can get them over at nickbenger.com slash lily hyphen chin see ya